Well, it is so good to be with you in this live episode of Interior Integration for Catholics. And I am so excited that licensed marriage and family therapist, Dr. Jerry Crete is back with us by popular demand. Dr. Jerry, uh, your, your episode with us around relating well with family members with narcissistic tendencies, that was so well received. And I am so glad to have you with us today. We had so much good feedback about episode 123. Glad to hear it. Yeah. I'm glad to be back. <laughs> so for this episode, we are in a series on the so-called, quote, borderline, end quote, personalities. And this is episode 129 of the Interior Integration for Catholics podcast from Souls and Hearts. I am Dr. Peter Malinowski, clinical psychologist, trauma therapist, podcaster, blogger, co-founder and president of Souls and Hearts. And I am your host and guide in this Interior Integration for Catholics podcast. It's both an honor and a pleasure to spend time with you. And I really want you to be able to taste and see the height and depth and breadth and warmth and the light of the love of God, especially God, our Father, and Mary, our mother, our spiritual parents, our primary parents. I'm here to help you embrace your identity as a beloved little son or daughter of God. And we do that here on this podcast and in Souls and Hearts, by shoring up the natural foundation for our spiritual life. We know from St. Thomas Aquinas that grace perfects nature, and we are all about offering you the best human formation resources to shore up that natural foundation. To bring that about, to live out our mission, I bring you new ways of understanding yourself, fresh conceptualizations, informed by the best of human formation resources, by the best of psychology, and firmly grounded in the perennial teachings of the Catholic Church. I am so glad you're with me on this mission. And today I offer you episode 129, recorded live on December 13th, 2023, released on January 1st, 2024. Dr. Jerry Crete, licensed marriage and family therapist from Atlanta, Georgia. He's the former president of the Catholic Psychotherapy Association. He has been adjunct faculty at, at a few different universities. He's the founder and owner of Transfiguration Counseling, and he is the co-founder with me of Souls and Hearts in 2019. Now, we have been going strong for more than four years now, Jerry. It's hard to believe, more than four years since we made it on the air. It has flown by. <laughs> <laughs> and we did the Be With The Word podcast uh, for a year. We did that together. Dr. Jerry is also the author of The Litanies of the Heart. The Litanies of the Heart are three prayers that he brought together that are based in attachment theory and really attuned to the human formation needs of our hearts. And what's exciting is that he's actually now authored a book called Litanies of the Heart, relieving post-traumatic stress and calming anxiety through healing our parts. That is put out by Sophia Press. It will be released on January 16th, 2024. You can pre-order it at, at Sophia Press. You can pre-order it, pre-order it at Amazon. And I am so excited to have you on today, Dr. Jerry. This is the fifth and final episode in our sub-series on borderline personality disorders on the IIC podcast. Here's an opportunity for us to bring it all together, getting down to where the rubber meets the road. There are lots of people here. We got a lot of familiar faces in our live audience today and some new ones as well. So 
I want folks to remember that this podcast is for educational purposes, so we don't offer any clinical services. We're not doing any psychotherapy or counseling or assessment or anything like that on this podcast. But we need to be able to talk about borderline dynamics in our families. You know, how do we best work with family members who are demonstrating some of these qualities that I've been describing in the last few podcast episodes? The plan is that I'm going to ask Dr. Jerry three questions about borderline personality dynamics. And he and I are going to talk for a little while, about 15, 20 minutes, just to set a frame. And I, in this frame, I really want a space for you, Dr. Jerry, to lay out what you most want us to know about the phenomenology of borderline dynamics, the high points, the most critical takeaways. And then we're going to open up the conversation. We're going to be able to have time for about an hour of question and answers with our live audience. So without any further ado, because there's been enough ado already, Without any further ado, I want to just open it up to anything that you would like to tell us just kind of just right off, right off the bat, Dr. J. Yeah. Yeah. Um, first, I want to say this whole series I thought was excellent. And I really appreciated the emphasis on borderline personality and that higher emotional sensitivity and the fact that if someone is struggling with uh, borderline the disorder itself or tendencies or whatnot. Um, it's it's all about an, a much more intense emotional inner experience than somebody who doesn't have that issue. And so, and I think that's a really difficult thing to understand if you're not, if you don't experience it yourself. So I really appreciated that, that you really got into that and you laid out a lot of great examples and so on. I would, one thing I would say is that uh, I've heard before that I thought was a helpful way to explain it is that for a regular person, if you touch their, let's say you touch their arm, you would feel their skin. The person would feel some lightness touching their arm. For a borderline person, for someone with borderline personality, it's almost like they don't have skin. So when someone touches their arm, the sensitivity is, you know, 20 times more than what one would expect. I'm just, I heard that before. I mean, I, I'm not saying that's scientific accuracy exactly, but it's just to convey the idea that of just uh, of the level of intensity that that a person might be struggling with in this. And so, so I would lead into from that to talk about the experience of invalidation that somebody with this issue experiences throughout their whole lives, even from a very young age. It wouldn't be uncommon for someone who who has this experience to be labeled sensitive or to be labeled a drama queen or to be labeled, uh, be told something like, oh, the world doesn't re revolve around you or you're overreacting. And those kinds of messages th th are heard over and over and over again. And so their experience is, is of chronic invalidation throughout their life. And that only feeds, right? into the disorder itself. And, and I think that if, you're, uh, if you have a family member who is struggling with this, I think it's really important, the number one important thing is to learn new ways to relate to that person, to communicate that, to that person, to not invalidate that person. That's the first kind of topic is this issue of invalidation. Wow, okay, so they have this experience 
that is really being minimized or invalidated or denied or contradicted by the people that they're close to or that exactly. they're wanting to be close to. Exactly. And I actually consider that a chronic trauma. So you're, you're dealing with somebody that that is experienced a, a life of invalidation primarily. And so that itself is a trauma. And what people often interpret the borderline person as being manipulative, you'll hear mm -hmm. that, oh, they're manipulative. And I would say, and you know, and they might be because we're all manipulative at times. So we all have a possibility of manipulating, uh, but I would actually reframe that completely and say that they're actually just trying to get their needs met, but they're doing it, they're actually not doing it enough or they're doing it in a way that actually doesn't get their needs met. It actually is counterproductive mm -hmm. and they just don't know. And, and you know, and that fits so well with the IFS model in working with the protector parts, because that's what we, when we connect with a, with a protective part of some kind who is, you know, in some way maladaptive, we actually want to try to understand their their actual intention and what their actual their underlying needs actually are mm -hmm. and try to work with that. And so I think someone with borderline is also, you know, is being accused of being manipulative. You actually rather than use words like that ever with them, would be instead to to help figure out a little bit, well, what is the what is that underlying need they're trying to trying to meet and and approach it from that perspective with them. So, Dr. Jerry, what is the biggest mistake? I mean, I, you were mentioning the invalidation, but what's the biggest mistake that family members make when they're relating with a family member that has these kind of dynamics? And would, well, you, would you say it's the invalidation or would you say there's something else that would be really important for us to know? I mean, I think that it's invalidation, but along with invalidation um, is probably a lot of expressed frustration, a lot of expressed anger, a lot of expressed, you know, resignation or even, you know, I wouldn't say, I don't know if I'd say abusive. In some cases it could be abusive, but like toxic kind of, kind of language. And the reason that happens is because for, for others, the behavior of the person with borderline can seem so can be so extreme mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that it elicits parts within ourselves that are going to react really, really negatively. Right, right. And and if you look at it just on the surface, you would and you like looked at a situation, you might really empathize with the person dealing with with the borderline person and be like, oh, of course they they lost their cool. Of course they got upset. Of course they said that. Maybe that wasn't very nice to say, but it kind of is justified or whatever. So. I would just say, if you if you don't really if you until you really understand this 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 issue properly, you're you're going to have those kinds of reactions. I think naturally. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it is a very difficult thing, I think, for most of us to to turn that around and change the way that we relate to to the person with this disorder. I'll give one example of a way to relate would be that might feel a little different. And that is to look for the kernel of truth. I say the little kernel of truth <laughs> in whatever it is that person is expressing to try in some way, even if you don't get it at all or very much, to figure out from their perspective what could possibly be the motivation. 
even if you don't agree with it or whatever and and starting that that way and so reframing the conversation a little bit i often think of children i know we're going to talk about spouses but mm -hmm. i've worked a lot of the work i've done with this is is parents working with even adult children with borderline or, and so on or sometimes a ch an adult child working with a parent with borderline so i tend to see the parent child I'll, I'll try to speak to the spouse as well later but i think that when you're say if it's your child even an adult child you you would have a tendency to say to see that that person like maybe take a really strong stand like i I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to the party. I'm not going to be there at Christmas or something like they take some kind of strong super stance over something. And we might have a tendency to say like, oh, come on, can't you get over yourself and just show up for an hour? <laughs> right. Or something along those lines. Like, can't you just, you know, so we have this tendency to start there. And what that will happen, what will that create in that person is, is going to do a, an entire spiral. Because whatever emotion they're having that's super intense that is telling them not to go in this case is going to get amplified, but you're also going to add a layer that I bet a lot of people might have a hard time believing, but a layer of guilt because they know on some level, they know they are disappointing and hurting the people they love and they can't tolerate that emotion on top of the emotion they're already experiencing of, of overwhelm and whatever the situation is. So instead of the, oh, can't you just you know, or why don't you just, or something along those lines, instead to say, I understand it's hard for you, you know, especially during this, you know, Christmas season or whatever it is, you know, to attend some of these social events. Start there. I understand, you know, um, or something like, okay, you're right. Of course, this is going to be hard for you. In some way, you're looking for a kernel of truth that you're understanding a little bit what what is hard for that person and then you you're, you're basically highlighting whatever that emotion is and on some level you're going to get more likely you're going to get a better response because they're going to at least feel that the other person has some microscopic sense of what their emotional experience is and that might be just enough to, for them to soften and just enough to start feeling like maybe they can make a choice that's different. Mm. No guarantees on that at all, but, but, but there's some possibility. And then, you know, like say you're dealing with a kid and, and, and they, they want to, there's a party or whatever it is and they want to stay up later, whatever, and they're frustrated and you're having boundaries issues or you're worried about them. You probably think of a million examples, but it would be, and they're about to have this like, I hate you and you, you rule my life and I can't do anything. And other kids are this, you know, this, in fact, you, I'm sure you don't have to be borderline to hear your teenagers, <laughs> uh, to be a borderline teen, to hear, you know, to have teenagers right. that say that. Right. But maybe you can make the argument that all teenagers are somewhat borderline personality. One could say, but uh, that's a little harsh, but, um, <laughs> but if you turn that around into, I understand that you, you want your independence or I understand why you know you're looking for some freedom here i understand like you begin with in some way you get it expressing in some way you get it and then a parent is likely to go but i'm the parent and it's late <laughs> and blah 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 and so they're not going to hear anything if you say but they're not going to hear anything other than they're going to hear oh you understood me but 
wash it all away. My ma- my feelings don't matter, and it's going to lead to something really negative. You know, their their response is only going to intensify. And so I really encourage people. It's very simple, but it's hard to actually do in practice. Is instead of the word, never use the word but. <laughs> Always use the word and. So I understand you really want your independence, and you had a really good school year, or whatever it was, and you 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 know you. I understand why you would want to stay out later and spend time, whatever. And I do have to set some boundaries as a parent. And then I'm not guaranteeing that all of a sudden everything's going to go rosy, but you, you, you're like, you're more likely to get a different reaction. You're more likely to lead to the possibility of even having a, a compromise or like, or at least a rec, like an agreement a, a willingness to work together on whatever that issue is. Because the worst thing you want to do with somebody who's struggling with borderline is corner them, right? And, and they're going to, they're, if they go up a tree, like a cat going up a tree, they're not coming down. So unless they have options, it's going to be a showdown and that, that you're not going to win. So it sounds like this what you're recommending would take a lot of recollection in the part of the family <laughs> member. Like, like, yes. does it, is, is this, is this, I mean, is it really realistic to be able to expect this? I'm just curious, Dr. Jerry, because I, I can imagine some of our listeners really thinking, is that, is this just pie in the sky? Is this just sort of theoretical? Like, how do we, how do we actually stay grounded enough? How do we actually stay recollected enough? so that we're not drawn in to the intensity of the storm. Like right. how do we, how do we hold our, how do we hold our, our hold, hold our ground in one sense, but hold our peace, keep our peace, maybe, you know, that kind of thing when we're working with a family member, that's, yeah, that's got this intensive reactivity and so forth. So I think that if, say if you're a parent or you're, um, or you're dealing with a loved one, Right. Like, a, I don't know if it's a spouse or even a mother or somebody or father. I think that you really do need to rely on supernatural grace. I really <laughs> do think a lot of prayer is warranted. But I also think if you have lived with somebody with this issue, you're probably feeling rather defeated. You're probably already ready to give up. And you're more like the issue might just be walk away, is might be where you're at right now rather than because you just can't fight anymore so the feeling like i just can't fight anymore is very common and so i think the the challenge to try to do what i'm saying is not that it's pie in the sky and just you know so nice or uh, unrealistic it's that people are worn out and they're exhausted and they're tired and they're hurt and unless you take care of yourself in that and, and spend a lot of time, I said in prayer, for sure in prayer, but maybe even getting your own support, which might mean having, you know, someone safe, like, well, a therapist for sure, or a person that you confide in, that you can talk to, that you could vent to, that is not going to compromise the privacy of, of your loved one, or in any way create gossip or create entanglements you don't need, but a safe place for you to be able to share and talk about how you feel. Because I think getting some of that out will be a really great way to be able to then have that recollection or be in self enough to be able to do the things I'm saying, like the and statements, right? Mm -hmm. Because it really is going to require a lot from you. Anybody here that 
has children at all knows that you know you basically give up so much of yourself to love you learn to love when you have children because you're you're giving so much of yourself to this person that sometimes you know doesn't appreciate it or you know has a hard time like parenting is just this this lesson in love right basically and and i think when you have a a person that you love who's who has this borderline issue it's 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 three times that mm -hmm. right it will challenge you to love it will um it might be one of the biggest it's probably might be one of the biggest ones i can think of um but if you really do believe um this person is experiencing life with this level of intensity all the time or most of the time mm -hmm. then you can start to have empathy for it you can be more recollected you can take care of your own parts that are just annoyed or angry or hurt or whatever by their behavior and you can start and, and, and you could just embrace it as a path to sanctity <laughs> and a path to just loving but it's never i say all that but i also say that it's so important it's still going to be important to have boundaries and it's and it's still it's still going to be important it's it, i'm not actually advocating just give in right like just do whatever this person wants and just agree to everything because i hope i didn't imply that at all because what what you're doing with the and and the example i gave before yeah i understand you want your independence right and you want to stay out later than whatever i i get it that makes sense to me and i have to set boundaries as a parent what you're really doing there is you're teaching you're trying to teach that both perspectives need to be honored that it's not you're trying to change the dynamic from always being a butting heads right and we're just gonna butt heads until one of us caves or gives up or something no in terms of like let's honor each other and so that takes a lot of recollection at times especially if you feel very wronged what have you but it, i think it's just a key aspect of, of of change the other the other thing i would add maybe is is like the the importance of acceptance like and this is more with adults because children it's gonna be really different but children aren't usually diagnosed with borderline anyway it's a, it, it may be they're oppositional or something but we're really talking about adults but in my example earlier example of when i said you know oh why can't you just come for an hour and make grandma happy or something like that or why can't you just do x right if instead you led with acceptance right oh i can i know you're tired you've been working hard all week it's been a rough week for you and you know of course we would all love for you to be there on sunday but you know i understand totally if if you can't some kind of acceptance it will be amazing it might shock some people that acceptance softens the, the person and their intense emotions down suddenly they have permission to oh like the raging emotions don't have to rage for a moment and it might i'm not there's no guarantees here <laughs> but it might soften them enough to be able to go yeah maybe i can maybe i can come for an hour but any attempt to like pressure it's going to make the situation worse and it's going to make it less likely that the person might make might make the choice that you're hoping for and so on so again it also challenges us then in that level of acceptance 
to really look at our own agendas and what agendas we're imposing as well. And, and we're really having to, again, like be in self to have that level of acceptance to be able to just say, you might need to take care of yourself then. Well, that's, that's what I was thinking about is that these all sound like polarizations among parts, mm-hmm. a part of my family member polarizing with a part of me, right? And if we can move to a position of that recollection of the innermost self really leading and guiding your system, it seems like it really softened those polarizations. Yeah, yeah. I would add though, I think it takes a certain amount of supernatural, I don't know if the word's forgiveness, or letting go, but when a person has emotions that are very, very strong and something is happening, they don't always think clearly. If they can't downregulate, they're not always thinking clearly. Mm-hmm. And they're not always going to remember the same stories the same way that everybody else remembers them. And you get into these situations where you're being accused of something and it's not the way the story happened. And you could even, and if you need to do your own reality check or check with other people, hey, am I crazy? Because that's not what happened. And yet they're saying that's what happened. And that's a hard thing to let go of because I think most of us have a part that wants to be right and, you know, wants the truth to be told. And you know what I mean? We should all at least agree on that. But uh, in fact, I think for some, for some times with this issue, you're not going to be able to resolve that. And if you pick at that, it's it's not going to go anywhere unless you have a videotape that you can show that to prove your point. But that's just another frustrating thing is that sometimes you're going to get smeared and it won't feel fair. And, and that is something you're just, you're going to, I don't know, I say supernatural grace, but you're just going to have to leave, turn that to God and just say, all I can do is what I can do. All I can do is love the person as best as I can. I can't control what they think and how they feel. Well, Dr. Jerry, thank you for that. I wanted to begin to open this up for questions from our audience. We had one come in on the chat that says, I wonder how to deal with rages. Both narcissistic personality disorder and borderline personality disorder have similar tendencies. I don't really care about the differences, as I'm wondering about those blazing rages. All right. I think it's, here's the trick, so to speak, for dealing with, with any, whether it's rage or any extreme emotion is, it sounds funny, but you validate it. In other words, you say, but you, you validate the emotion, not the intensity of the emotion and not the behavior, almost probably not the behavior. In other words, you ask yourself, okay, what are they feeling? All right. Intense rage, that rage, that's anger. So they're feeling anger. (laughs) You ask yourself, how does it make sense in any universe, best as I can figure out that they would feel that way? And then, and you answer that question to yourself and then you reflect that back. So in other words, okay, makes sense to me that you're angry because you know, you got a speeding ticket, a $300 speeding ticket today. It makes sense that anybody would be angry about that, right? But then you have to stick to the facts. And that's a big, with with borderline, it's really important to stick to the facts (laughs) because that's the only thing that can help ground them back. In other words, it's okay that you're angry, right? But the the fact is you were driving, you know, 120, 
on the highway. Right. The fact is you were driving 120. I understand. Yeah, of course you felt angry because nobody likes to get a ticket and whatever else. And why did they pick you and not somebody else that was also driving that speed? Sure. Of course you're angry, but the fact is you were driving 120. And so sometimes it's more like, that's a very specific kind of thing, but sometimes it's more of a relational thing. A person, a typical thing, a more relational example would be my, my best friend told me that and come up with something like told me that they're going out with a couple other friends this weekend. I don't know, uh, but it's for some purpose and, and I wasn't invited. And they're raging about that or they're very, very upset about that. And, and, and so if you stop and say, well, okay, first of all, you, that's easy to validate, right? Oh, you must feel left out. You must feel like, you know, included, da, 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 da. Yeah. And you might find out, oh yeah, the, my last best friend did the exact same thing. And it was because they didn't want to be my friend anymore. Okay. So, and so that's what's happening now. All right. So stick to the facts, stick to the facts. Did your friend tell you they never want to see you again? Or did they tell they gave you a reason for, for why they were going with these other people for this purpose? Okay, so we don't actually know. We don't just because this did happen to you before, and no wonder you're triggered, no wonder you're feeling insecure, but we don't actually have the facts, right? You know, and so you're helping one way or another to separate out, okay, validating emotions. And then going and helping that reality check and that fact check happen because it's the emotions, the intensity of the emotions kind of cloud that ability to, to have that kind of reasoning or, or whatever. And then don't next step might be, okay, well, if you are worried about that, is that, is there a way you can ask your friend, a borderline person could have like an overreaction. Like if their friend says, Hey, I'm just going out for this particular kind of trip. It's because we're helping. My other friend, Joe, do blah, blah, blah. So it's just going to be the three of us. Oh, fine. You don't love me. You don't want to be around me anymore. Hang up, right? That could be a borderline type reaction. Rather than if they really are worried, if they are concerned to say, oh, if they, to be able in some way to express, is this, you still want to be my friend or, or, or is our relationship okay? Are we, are we okay? And, and then the person, oh, yes, of course, you know, or whatever. Or if there's an issue, there might be an issue, but but you're, you're basically, you're wanting to help them do fact checking rather than emotional reacting. Okay. And if they're raging at you, let's go to, you know, where it becomes <laughs> maybe the most difficult, right? And they're bringing up things that, you know, that don't seem just, that don't seem true. And, and they're, and they're, they're targeting you. I'm thinking of, you know, an intense conflict between spouses okay do you have guidance for that kind of rage when it's i think it would be easier if it was a third party or another person or another situation but like when it's you that they're angry at. right right well i i would say a couple of things come to me i i'm i get uncomfortable with the word rage <laughs> maybe that's <laughs> my own parts but so i have immediate safety little alarm goes off so if somebody is is raging, you know, I think the Incredible Hulk and smashing things, if the environment's not safe, you can't stay in an unsafe environment. First. So okay. I just feel the need to say that okay. up, up front. And so I would just say, leave the situation if you feel unsafe. But if, the, if it's anger and it seems displaced, but it's directed to, towards you, again, it's always an option to say, to remove yourself, right? Because that just 
might be very abusive. And sometimes that may be the best thing you can do. That, that may be the best thing in your repertoire if you're honest that, yeah. you know, there's nothing I can say here that's going to be helpful. Yeah. I mean, you could say, I care about you. Let's talk about this in an hour. Yeah. And, that, and you know that with the borderline person, their emotions are going to, you talked about switching, like their, their emotions do switch pretty rapidly sometimes. And shockingly to some people, like how somebody could be so upset about something and then they act totally normal, like an hour later or half an hour later. And you're like, how did that happen? So it is just, it's just the nature of it. Again, if you're able to, if it's not rage, I, I don't know. I can't speak to rage. I can't speak into rage myself. I would walk okay. away. I would walk away from rage. But if the person is just angry and upset, to be able again to say in any way, find the kernel of truth. Okay. I see you're upset at me because I showed up late. Okay. And I know I've showed up late before. I know that really, really upsets you. And I think just that, or I gave that example, if it really is something that, that you can apologize for, apologize. But if it's not really the kind of thing you would apologize for, but it's at least on some level you can make some sense of why their emotion is, is happening, then you just simply validate it and watch and see whether something softens. Okay. Most of the time it will, but no guarantees. The other thing I would say also, just the flip of that would be if someone is working, like, like I personally wouldn't want to be in a relationship with someone that's just simply volatile. I would have a hard time with that. I don't know. <laughs> Most of us would, right? So I, I would say if the relationship is, is a marriage, even a relationship that might be leading to marriage, I think that it would be important to have marital help right? To have facilitation and support through something like that, because that's a pretty, we're talking about a, a clinical level borderline personality disorder is pretty serious. And it's, you just can't do that on your own. And you have your own, probably most people will have their own issues. They're also working on themselves. So I would expect a partner with this issue to be in therapy of some kind, but anyway, and so if they're in therapy or in some way they're doing their own work, it's very important to validate all the time the the right thing. And so being having a role of, of a bit of a cheerleader and encourager, basically where you're acknowledging, given that you understand their issue, you're acknowledging how hard it is for them and you're just you're just giving lots of validation. You know, even if they came to you to talk to you about how they were feeling, right? And that normally doesn't happen. Well, to be able to say, ah. Oh, Thank you so much for coming to me and talking to me. I know that was not fun for you, but I really appreciate it. It means a lot to me. Like that kind of thing will go miles and miles. Right. I can see that. We had, we had uh, somebody earlier leave a voicemail and I wanted to play this voicemail for us to be able to, for you to be able to respond. So let's go ahead and roll this one. Hey, Dr. Peter, my name is Nora. So my question. Ooh, how to navigate a marriage where one person likely falls in the BPD area, somewhere in the spectrum, and their counterpart, their spouse, has a has a prominent narcissistic subsystem. So there's a borderline prominent borderline subsystem, prominent narcissistic subsystem, and there seems to be this battle for the 
integrity needs of each individual to be met, and the other person just seems completely unable on both sides to meet their integrity needs. And so for the borderline who so desperately wants to know that they are loved, that they're they're okay, that they matter, that they're that they're worth you know taking up space in the world, and then the the narcissistic incapable or are just unable at the moment to to appreciate the pain of that space. But then also, so so someone who struggles to love with someone who who cannot know that they're lovable. But how to navigate that relationship when it is so painful as someone maybe on the more BPD spectrum, it is so painful to feel unloved and unlovable. Um, how does one live well in relationship with someone who is more NPD when, when they uh, can't give what they don't have even to like just a standard level of care? So, um, yeah, that is my question. Thank you so much and thank you for all that you do. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, my first reaction would be find a really good marriage counselor and someone who uh, I would say someone who's maybe a licensed marriage family therapist or a psychologist who specializes in marriage. But also I would say someone who, who knows parts work like IFS, because I think that, or even, and I would also recommend emotionally focused couples therapy, EFT. If you found somebody with all of that in one person, what a great, what a great catch. But because you really are in, in any of these personality disorders. So you hear we got a narcissist with borderline. And I, I would argue that deep down their needs are similar. And they just are trying to get those needs met in different ways. And so it might be helpful with counseling and so on to really, you, you know, really figure out what are the parts on each side. They're trying to get their needs needs met in in difficult in ways that are actually counterproductive to the relationship. And how could we um, and learning skills, right? On some level, it's going to be learning some skills around empathy and learning how to respond when somebody you know reacts a certain way. So I just feel like there's a lot there, a lot of learning and practice and stuff like that that would come into it. So I say that. I'm fascinated a little bit by that dynamic in a way, because I might imagine that, and you, Peter, you can help me out here if, if I say something kind of off or whatever, but I would imagine that a narcissist person like would be very attracted to the neediness of the borderline person, at least initially, because they can then be the center of attention for that person. And they, the narcissist can be very, very charming. So they, they might, it would be very easy for the borderline person to idealize the narcissist initially. Mm -hmm. and, and so the relationship would kind of form that way. And then, and, and so they're sort of like unhealthily, like feeding off of each other. <laughs> Absolutely. Until, yeah. Yeah. Until at some point there, that's it crushed, right, right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which can get crushed pretty frequently. And that's the, that's the dynamic that was laid out between uh, Tina and Philip, those characters I made up in episode 127, you know, where, there is this idealization that happens and, and then that's followed by the devaluation, right? So, yeah, so that's, I, I would, I would certainly, I can certainly see how that increases the, the intensity and the, the switching and variability in the relationship. Mm -hmm.
if you want a movie example, because I love movies, The Godfather Part Two. <laughs> the uh, you know he's a classic narcissist. The I forget. I know I'm blanking. The overt. Out. Yeah, the overt. Yeah, narcissist. The, yeah. I, I'm going to blank out on names. I'm terrible with names, but but the the Al Pacino character, and then and then his ex wife is sort of more more possibly borderline. I wouldn't call her clinically, but some of those tendencies. So you you see almost that play out in those in those movies because that makes the best drama. But <laughs> but it is actually not that uncommon. I think for those mm. two to combine. Because the immediate way in which they seem to meet each other's needs, at least at the beginning. Absolutely. Well, I'm wondering if somebody would like to ask a question. You know, feel free to let us know. Hands up if you'd like to to speak. Got a couple that have come in. Yes. Yes, by all means, Emily. Yeah. So I guess I'm trying to put this question together, but it's sort of related to the question of learning to love people with borderline tendencies or maybe even a clinical diagnosis, but also kind of like you talked about where maybe you, Dr. Gary would say, I'm going to walk away at that point. Love and being called almost a martyrdom of love, but then like self-care and knowing when it's too much because people with borderline, a lot of times there's, you know, substance abuse or other things going on. And I just don't know if there's a lot of resources to help someone discern at what point can you say, I don't need to try that extra you know, effort, I need to now step back and take care of myself. And just knowing that, yeah, that fine yeah. line, if you there's a word that, that borderline people hate, hate, it's called boundaries. <laughs> and so as soon as you talk about boundaries, you know, they, they tend to recoil because there is a, is what you're doing, what you're saying is how to, where do I set my boundary? What, when am I going to walk away? When am I going to do this or that? And I think that it's going to be really important for you know, to do some boundary work. There's some great books on boundaries. You know, there's one I think about Townsend called Boundaries, I believe. And and then you you lay out your boundaries. So if, again, if you're if you're dealing with somebody, especially clinical, I, I really can't say enough to have some kind of marriage counseling and to have something worked out where you're it's at least laid out. What are our healthy boundaries in a marriage? What are the boundaries we're agreeing to as a couple? And what how, how do we maintain our boundaries? So what are the what will we choose to do if X happens? What will we choose to do if Y happens? And that there's some kind of agreement to that. I just think it's kind of important to have that kind of laid out for everybody's safety. This isn't meant to be, you know, a martyrdom. And, and if you're kind of codependent with a borderline person, then to use that word is tricky, but but it means somehow if your identity, I'm not saying you personally, I'm talking in general, if if one's identity is tied up in being the one who saves the borderline person and, you know, kind of just very much like an alcoholic or something like that, where you're enabling them and you are, your whole, your whole role in life is they're emotionally volatile and I'm here to save them. Then you need your own work to, to address that and, and work on that in order to be able to create healthy boundaries because maybe you partnered because you have no boundaries and they don't like boundaries. <laughs> and that was how the relationship got started. It seemed like a match in heaven, but in fact, it's unhealthy. So, you know, and a person, the other person might feel all of a sudden you're talking boundaries like, oh, you're changing the rules. And so it's, it's important, I would think, important to get help, facilitation to kind of talk through that because you might need an objective person like a marriage a good marriage counselor to say no no that is a good healthy boundary and it's okay to say no to that and it's okay to walk away from that 
you know, you might need that reality check if you don't have it yourself and your partner doesn't have it themselves in order to set all of those. So that, I don't know, I could say more, but does that answer some of what you're asking or is there another dimension I might've missed? Yeah, I guess um, as a follow-up, my experience is just, I have been raised by a parent with borderline personality and now I'm in a relationship with someone whose parent is also in the same dynamic. So I think as from the child perspective or now as an adult to an adult, but still in that child perspective, it is difficult. I think boundaries, like you said, definitely is a huge part of the learning curve that I've experienced, but also again, the degree to which I want to show compassion versus hold somebody accountable for bad behavior. It's a challenge. Like, you know, I feel like there's no accountability borderline because if you wanted to bring anything up, there's a defensiveness or there's an inability to, to see from your perspective. And so it's just really challenging. Like, I don't want to say how much abuse do we want to put up with, but that's how it feels sometimes. So just, again, wondering if there's any healing that can happen on the other end where there's there, if they're capable of awareness of, yeah, you know, I need to change a little bit too. Not just, we have to be really super, you know, calm and cool. I mean, I think for someone with borderline, they need some kind of treatment some kind of assistance to work through in order to have improvement. Everybody else in their lives can try all kinds of great things and talk to them in really specialized ways. It's not as maybe, and that may help, but I think it's really important for that person to get some help. Like probably the, the, the more gold standard, if you will, treatment would be DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, you know, so somebody doing some kind of training, some kind of, basically they have to be working on themselves. And, and they're literally learning skills around how to have empathy, how to think about things from other people's perspectives. But before they can do that, they need to learn the skills on how to emotionally deregulate, how to come down from intense emotions. Because if they can come down from intense emotions and then they can have some kind of training or some understanding of, of how other people feel, they'll actually be able to get it. But you, they can't get it. But yeah, if you confront somebody who's emotionally dysregulated and, 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 and you know, and, and various, they're not going to be able to like feel anything for you. And that can be extremely, extremely frustrating. On a side note, it's occurring to me also that one thing we can do, right, is really avoid moral judging. Because I think there's a tendency from us, anybody I would do uh, as well, in terms of making it about character and morality rather than about behavior that makes life better for that person and everybody else around them. And so again, it's about reframing the way we, we ask for things and say things. And because it would be really easy to say, you know, you're rude and mean, you're mean and something It's sort of a, a, a moral judgment or you're selfish to get a moral judgment. It might, feel extremely justified <laughs> given what might be going on, but it's, it's not a helpful, it doesn't, it doesn't do anything to help. And so instead focusing on like, what will make life better? If, if you choose this, this will be better for you because of why it will be better for me too, because of Z, whatever it is. And, and with kids, that might be things like helping them see, you know, coming home on time, you get this and it's, it might seem basic to most of us, but a lot of times someone with borderline needs a little flow chart to actually 
get, oh, oh, you mean the fact that I said that made you so upset and that's why you responded the way you did. Because if they don't go through that flowchart, all they hear is what you said at the end. You called me the B word. And that's all they hear now. They didn't hear, they've lost this train of everything. And they're only going to remember and hear that you called me the B word or you said that I'm selfish. And, and that's, that's all that remains. Instead of, okay, no, there is a chain, there's a reaction of things that happened that led to this. And if we try this instead, we'll get a different result. And that's the whole, they do that in DBT, I think, and stuff. I'm not a DBT trained person, personally. I, I don't love doing that stuff. I, I love parse work. I like IFS, ego state therapy stuff, <laughs> and trauma work. But nevertheless, I know I, DBT is so effective and so useful in doing those kinds of interventions. Right. We've got other questions people would like to speak out. We have one that's come in. I actually am going to bring to the front. If a partner won't attend therapy, get an individual therapist to determine boundaries independently. I was in that situation a year ago and got a counselor who has worked with addiction and family trauma. It's been incredibly helpful for me to know when I need to be involved and what I own in the relationship versus just the reactions. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if the person refuses, there's not a lot you can do to make them go to therapy, I would think. But I think you getting help is also very, very important, whoever, you know, is in that situation. Because, and I think that's pretty common, actually, and not just with borderline, but with a lot of marital things where there's a real issue in the marriage and, and one person sees it and the other person refuses to work on it. So common. So at a minimum, you can do your own work. And that might help you set your boundaries. You still have to set boundaries and you can still learn how to communicate boundaries to your partner and, and, and set them and maintain them. You know, again, I have this little radar or whatever it is in my head that I feel like I always have this need to say if the person is abusive, you know, that in any way physically violent, in any way, like just emotionally abusive, like, you know, name calling and, you know, this kind of like just toxic kind of behavior. I, I, I just, I have a very strong advocate of me that says, you know, you don't need to tolerate that. Uh, you shouldn't have to tolerate that. And separation could be the boundary. If a per and, and sometimes that boundary is the only thing that ends up getting, having the other person perhaps get help. But you are, of course, risking with that boundary that they will leave. Uh, and some people can't tolerate that risk. But I just have a need to say you nobody should tolerate being abused. Well, this is an interesting question that's come in that kind of and I, I really like this question, Dr. Jerry, because it it's it's starting to look at this through the eyes of someone who has borderline like qualities. So here's here's this question. Over the years, I have developed borderline-like reactions to the aversive behavior of my personality-disordered family members. I feel increasingly unable to, be, to even be around them anymore as I have become more and more reactive to them. How can I start to reverse this? Yeah. I suspect that if you think you have borderline tendencies like that, that it's probably not really that. But I'm not discounting the person's statement. But I, all I'm saying is like, they're probably being too hard on themselves, is, is what I mean to say. What they are finding is that they're becoming more and more emotionally dysregulated. 
in those relationships that are probably in some way, you know, toxic and so on. Again, I would encourage therapy to work through that. I, you know, I would need more information to say more, a lot more. Is it not okay to start with, you know, parts approach at least and say, there are parts of me that are reacting really poorly and having a lot of anger and a lot of reactions to this family member, that family member, or the whole crew of them. And to be able to say, you know what? That's understandable. They're really difficult. And you know what? How do we want to protect our system in a healthy way? Right. Right. Maybe we're not going to yell and scream at them. Maybe we're not going to burn their house down, but we may have other options. Right. And, and that might mean taking some time away, or that might mean learning some conflict management things for yourself and how to getting some help for you to be able to handle it if you, if you absolutely have to. Well, one of the things I, I, I think it's, it's really might helpful to remember is that just because there's emotional dysregulation doesn't mean that things are necessarily getting worse. Let me give you an example. If there's a part of you that's been angry with your family and it's never been given voice, it's never been allowed to bring that anger into your conscious awareness. When that anger first starts coming up, it's probably going to be dysregulated. It's probably not going to be really well modulated. And so I, I want to be careful that we don't just say that when there's emotional regulation in quotes, that it's better than when there's emotional dysregulation. Because sometimes what passes as emotional regulation is really emotional suppression. It's really when the managers have locked down the system in a way that was adaptive because if, you know, the child had let those emotions out in the family of origin or whatever, there would have been, you know, all kinds of catastrophic consequences in the parents. But sometimes when people are getting healthier, you wind up with these emotions coming up. And because there's a lack of practice with them, there's a lack of familiarity with them. I'm willing to tolerate some of that, you know, in the therapy work, you know, with clients with me. But I will definitely say that it's really uncomfortable in the family environment, you know, because that's unfamiliar oftentimes for folks to be experiencing from a family member where we never saw that from Linda before, or we never saw that from Tommy before. But if we never saw it from Bobby or Linda, then they're probably not, it's not a borderline. It, this is them finally sharing something and they're just learning how to do it. Is that, is that, I think that's your point, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just saying that, you know, Sometimes we get concerned that, yeah, that we're experiencing something that we've never experienced before and it's, it's not going, it doesn't seem to be going well to our manager parts that are evaluating it. And that's not necessarily the case because a lot of times it's stuff that we're, we're breaking into this is new ground for the first time and to be gentle with ourselves with it. And if we recognize it's going on with somebody else too, which can be admittedly hard to do, especially if their emotional intensity is going up. That that also could be something that that we could potentially appreciate if we can stay grounded enough. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I wouldn't want to leave the impression either that any kind of emotional expression that feels intense is necessarily bad, right? Like mm -hmm. obviously, lots of we we would typically if somebody's crying or sobbing, we we tend to be understanding, right? Whereas if they're angry, that's can be frightening for a lot of people, and so. If I understand where we're, we're going here would be to say, like, it might be okay to find, to express anger, 
in a healthy, good way. And to be able to tolerate that anger that a person is expressing, there's a line between that and being directed at a person in a way that is vicious or whatnot. Right. right. Yeah. I want to throw something positive out if that's okay right now. I don't know. <laughs> but but I, I do want to put a positive spin a little bit uh, and say this. If you're in a relationship with somebody you love and they're struggling with borderline, let's say, I would encourage you to reflect on as much as you can the beautiful things that that person adds to your life. Because we can have a tendency to simply put, you know, see them as just a disorder or see them as all negative. And I think that if you're in a relationship with them, if it's a child or somebody you really care about, like a, a spouse or a parent or something, reflect on what it's like to be around them when they actually are happy and, and, and so on. Because I think that there is a book called Walking on Eggshells, I think it's called. It's actually a pretty good book on, that, on this topic. But we, we tend to walk on eggshells. When somebody is volatile, we'll walk on eggshells around them. Like where you walk into the room kind of like, okay, is this person okay today? And, and a person, <laughs> this kind of sensitivity will pick up on that and it'll almost like spark right away. And I think that if we are able to like, you know, reasonably stay positive, we, we're actually also calling them to positivity too. And I'm not just talking, I'm talking Pollyanna or rose colored glasses or anything like that. I'm just saying to be able to remind yourself of what you love about that person, because the chances are, I would put a lot of money down, whether if it's somebody in your life that, that you love and is close to you, that they love you very much or care about you very much. It's just very complicated for somebody with this disorder. And it may not feel like they love you at all many times. But if we're able to focus on who they are, and again, this is sort of supernatural because I think it's the way God sees them. And we, we're not gods, so we can only do this <laughs> so good. But, but to be able to see the beautiful things in that person and to, as much as you can, call that out in a way that will help them feel less of the shame and the weight of, of everything that's going on inside them. And again, I'm talking very generally. There's different people who are different and may need different approaches. But I just feel like it's important to stay positive also. I think we forget, some of us forget, we might forget if we're dealing with a person who's just so difficult a lot of the time. Like yeah. Little things like if I walk in the room and smile, that might actually be huge. If they feel everything intensely, like if you walked in and said, oh, did you not put out the paper I asked you to? Like, and you're not even yelling, you're not screaming, but you're like, did you not put out? They're hearing that as I'm a bad person and you're angry at me. And so, and of course, it gets tiring to have to always like tone down everything you say and tiptoe around everything but if you come in with just a smile you know oh nice to see you right and that'll soften everything oh yeah did you put out that thing oh you forgot oh no problem did you go get it you know the dynamic changes and i am thinking when i'm saying all this i'm mostly thinking parent-child dynamics so to be honest and there's different dynamics i think with spouses that, that need to happen well other questions do folks have Got another one that's come in through the chat and it says, thank you very much for all of this. I would like to know more about the healing process or forgiveness that needs to take place when a mother has borderline and the daughter is suffering with that situation. From the psychological point of view, especially dealing with guilt, shame, anxiety, as a result of the relationship, could you please tell us more? Of course, therapy is necessary. 
Thank you very much. Yeah. So, right. Of course, I'm going to suggest therapy because it's for that person, the experience of, of their mother, as much as I'm sure they love their mother and as much as in their mother's way loves them, it's probably been a lot of trauma, right? So I would just say, you know, as a person who does a lot of treatment of trauma, it needs some of the same things, right? Like, you know, whether it's parts work, it's like attending to the parts of you that are that little kid, especially the wounded child. If you're raised by someone who's borderline, I think Emily shared. And like, if you're raised by someone who's borderline, you've probably been hurt a lot in childhood. And so those are traumas. And there's a the whole wounded orphanage in there that needs some help. And so, you know, I, of course, I'm going to say get therapy for that. But if, if not, at least spend a lot of time taking care of those parts and soothing those parts and working with those parts that are, that are hurt. So maybe it's support groups too. You know, there are lots of support groups for people who, who've dealt with that, but like finding ways to take care of yourself, noticing if your reactions are symptoms of trauma, right? Like flashbacks and irritability and be able to name Amelia and you can look them up. There's tons of symptoms of trauma to recognize. Are you dealing with some kind of post-traumatic stress? Are you dealing with, I would say it's this, in similar ways to being an adult child of an alcoholic. There's a lot of similar things because it's children are needing security when they're raised. So when you're a child, like this is all attachment theory stuff, like, so pray the litanies. <laughs> but when you're a child, you rely on your parents for safety and security and they're your, they're your safe base. And from there, you learn how to feel secure in yourself. You may learn to feel secure with God. You may learn to feel secure with safe people. But when the base and the foundation wasn't secure, when it was erratic, when sometimes it was amazingly close, and then another time it was something else, then what does that do to your sense of safety? It teaches you that people that you care about, that you love, can suddenly flip on you. You can't depend on them to be emotionally safe for you. That's very damaging. So I would say get as much help as you can. You deserve it. Well, other questions. Maybe something's been brewing or kicking around inside of your mind or something's been on your heart. We have time to take a couple more if folks have questions that they would like to bring up. We've covered all of the ones that were in the chat as far as I can tell. So yes, Madeline. To speak to what... Dr. Jerry was just saying, I'm pretty sure that my mother had, you know, maybe she was diagnosable, but she certainly had. She had a terrible, lots of trauma in her own life. And it was a pretty, uh, I think we grew up in a home, you know, she, I think she had borderline, at least tendencies. And I have borderline tendencies. I think my sister does uh, because of the dynamics that we grew up in. And so I'm going to send this. When you post it, I'm going to send the link to my children because they grew up with somebody with borderline tendencies, you know. And I hope that they will get help. You know, that's what I would like for them because, because I know what it did to me and I have some idea of what I did to them. So I just think that's a really important point to have made that you know, that people who have lived in that or children who've grown up in that need help, whether they realize it or not, you know. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. 
I I don't obviously know your whole situation or your children, but I think you reaching out to them with that, you know, to say, you know, basically what you're saying now, I think will mean a lot to them. Because that doesn't sound like your mom did that for you. I think it's living in this generation, we have the benefit of how far the field has come. Yeah. For one thing, my parents went through the war. It was a completely different generation. There was no understanding of attachment theory. You know, children children grew up in horrendous circumstances sometimes, you know, in terms of attachment. So, yeah, I feel very, you know, really blessed to have the help that yeah. I have. Yeah. yeah, I think that it's it's wonderful, too, to recognize that general generational aspect. I know in the book that I wrote, my first chapter is called Original Trauma. And it's the idea that the notion that it's not just a question of original sin, but when the with the fall, it was also the introduction of a disconnection from God, initial relational trauma and disconnection from each other. And we even see, you know, first major sin is is murder like Cain and Abel, right? And so we know that we know that we're all we're all affected by this trauma and that is being that is passed down and we're all hurt by it and you know and like you've expressed like being hurt by it yourself and hurting others and so that's part of our the condition and so all of us really recognize that and as parents i don't know as parents if you're a good loving parent you're going to question all kinds of things i do i always wonder, oh did i hurt my child this way or did i cause this we we do guilt ourselves a lot and 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 often there are things we need to apologize for but a little bit of just you know being kind to yourself that it didn't come out of nowhere and if you feel what you're feeling right now it says a lot about your heart and being able to communicate that i bet that will mean a lot and will be a gift and it may be a gift for them i don't know if your children have any children yet or anything but it will be when they do it will be a gift that will be passed on so what we're really wanting to do is reverse that we're turning that cycle around and even you taking the step you did is is an important thing in that reversal yeah there can be a lot of repair that happens between parents and adult children just an acknowledgement or a recognition can sometimes just mean so much depending on where the where the adult children are and their levels of receptivity and and so forth so yeah to make the gesture to reach out to acknowledge what their experience was to to validate their own experience which maybe you know they're not sure about you know because a lot of times our childhoods are can be really confusing to us you know there's a lot that we might not understand about what happened when we were growing up so so all of that is gift I do think that, yeah, we were talking about repairing. I, I like the, you know, post-traumatic growth, but I also like the fact that growth fostering relationships are ones that are not without disconnection. In fact, it's the disconnection and then the working through the disconnection that leads to deeper, more meaningful connections. So if we as parents can offer that to our children, we're giving them an amazing gift, teaching them how to work through disconnection. We had a question come up, Dr. Jerry, 
Could you, Dr. Jerry, speak to the parental perspectives of older parents, like those from the greatest generation, like Madeline was just talking about, when parents parented more like benevolent dictators, instead of being aware of and prioritizing their children's feelings? I think there's room for two things. I would say there's some room to make some space. Maybe it's just a counseling session. I will do it. When I'm walking on the, there's a greenway, the pathway in the forest when I, when it's like 28 degrees and nobody else wants to walk, but my Canadian self wants to get out there and walk anyway, and nobody's out there and I just let them have it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so there's a sense in which it's okay to create a space to just vent or to just express that you were hurt or that they didn't get it and they, they should have been nicer. They should have whatever. And so get out whatever it is. So there needs to be a space for that. And then. To me, there's also a space in terms of just forgiving, and that's just part of the maturing process. I think that starts to happen for a lot of parents once their kids get to a certain age, where you start to go, okay, I now get how hard it, it is, and I see my own mistakes, and you start to have a little bit of forgiveness for your parents. Maybe even if they made worse mistakes than you did, <laughs> still something happens there when you kind of join in this community that's of parenthood that says, man, it's hard. And yeah, I don't appreciate the ways that I was parented in some ways, but you know, the adage that they were doing their best might be kind of mostly true. Not in all cases. But maybe it is, you know, they adapted and they handled it based on what they had and what they knew. And I remember Madeline was just talking about, you know, what, what her parents kind of knew. And they didn't have any, they didn't know about attachment theory. They weren't praying litanies. They weren't talking about their parts, like none of that. And so they really had very limited access to anything that would have been helpful. So other than what they learned from their parents or maybe from whatever society was saying. So we can start a path of forgiveness. We can also do, you know, I think for all the generations, so what is the greatest generation? We can also be thankful, you know, we, so we're allowed to vent, we're allowed to forgive, and we're also allowed to be thankful because that generation did offer a lot of good things too. Our, our parents, I mean, unless they were simply wolves, they, I'm sure they did good things. And so those good things, don't have to be discounted by the the problematic things. Usually if you're if you haven't done your own processing, your own venting and your own work, it's very hard to see anything but the pain and the hurt. And so once you're processing, you start to go, yeah, and you're forgiving and you're working on your own stuff. You start to be able to access, yeah, but they also did this that was good for us. And they they tried their best in this way. And I appreciate that. And you start to have some gratitude is allowed to be part of the equation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, that's one of those things where we, we need to be able to appreciate that this does happen within a kind of cultural context, you know, and I, I go back to when I began graduate school and that was the very beginning. This is in the early nineties. It was the very beginning of a modern understanding of trauma. Mm -hmm. You know, before that, before Judith Herman's book, trauma and recovery, we were really in kind of a dark age really I and mean, compared to what we have now so yeah i think we have a lot more room for for hopefulness here yeah like i often think about things like the way like my grandfather handled things i love 
love my grandfather passed, but he was a very loving man. But if I if I held him to the standards of today, he would fail in some some ways. It's not because he wasn't loving. It's something he just didn't know. And I think we need to do that. We need to, we can't hold people in the past to every standard of today. We see that happening in the cancel culture to some extent, even if it's just culturally, right? And and I think that's just a dangerous path. We definitely can grow. We can definitely get better. But if we stay in resentment and revenge or something, you know, we don't need to tear everything down. We can all we can appreciate the good as well. Another question. Somebody else got a question for us. Yes, that'd be great, Joanna. I'm curious if either of you, Dr. Peter or Dr. Jerry, have experience with clients with BPD dynamics who have been healed, um, transformed, integrated with IFS alone and no longer have the borderline personality dynamics. Because Dr. Jerry, you mentioned DBT, but I'm just wondering, isn't it possible to heal with just IFS for these folks? So just so you know, I primarily work with trauma survivors, although of course, majority of BPD people have a lot of trauma. I do a lot of work with trauma and, and sexual abuse. So I don't typically have classic borderline personality disorder clients. That's not been my typical thing. Of course, I have worked with them and I have seen lots of different cases. A lot of the time I have done work with family members, actually, who are working with somebody with borderline, more than I've treated borderline. I would think that, okay, I have a thought and it's going to be, might take me somewhere else. I don't know, but I want Peter to answer this question because he can answer it even better than I can your direct question. Mm -hmm. But I've been doing a lot of work lately, though, on emotions, core emotions, and Pangsep is the 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 researcher whatever he's now passed away but who did all this like research and on on core emotions and um he studied rats and so he looked at core emotions in all mammals and found like there was this set of emotions that are that we don't have to learn no mammals have to learn it, it's built in it's hardwired and so i've worked with somebody that has borderline type emotional volatility i have a few protocols that i would use that are about almost like resetting their emotional circuits because it's like, if, if I was to say to somebody like, like with that borderline tendency, like, oh, what does fear look like? And they were to sit with that for a second, they might be overwhelmed with just that image. And so I feel like the technique that I would be doing would be I have this, you know, this little protocol to help rebring down so they could sit with each emotion. So my own theory, I, and I, I don't know if I can prove it, but I would say that a lot of borderline may a lot, maybe not all. Some people just have natural sensitivities, but may happen early on, very early on, in where you're you don't learn how those emotional circuits get. Maybe it's happening some genetic way, or maybe it's something natural. I don't know. Maybe it's happening because of certain parenting styles, like they used to tell parents to like just let your kid cry it out, and now I think they don't say that. But if your kid just cries it out, they what are they learning? Right? They're learning that nobody's gonna if they're feeling fear or if they're feeling anger. Nobody's going to come through them. There's no end to their fear. There's no end to their anger. To me, that promotes a sort of possibly promotes a more emotionally reactive person than, you know, but parents didn't know. That's what parents were told. But there's work you can do to help reset those, those emotions and help, you know, maybe as simple as like, you know, here I'm going to link it into parts work. 
you know, that little baby. You might not have a conscious memory of that little baby, but you may have known, oh yeah, when I was little, my mom was super busy. I was, she hardly carried me or held me or something. I don't know, whatever it is. And you say, okay, well, let's, can we connect with that part? Can we connect with the part that that little baby part that wasn't held very much or was allowed to scream all night? All right, what would it be like to sit with that, hold that baby? Can we hold that part? What's it like holding the baby? And then what's it like for the baby to be held? What's it like as the mom, let's say, to feed the baby or to, to rock the baby? What's it like for the baby to be rocked? What's it like for the baby to be fed? You know, so you're sort of doing this thing where you're, you're basically, it's sort of a little bit of a back and forth where you're helping that person have the experience where the parts of them that didn't get what they needed get the, what they need now. So even though I, I don't have clients that I label borderline personality disorder typically, but I think I have lots that have, because they're trauma, that have borderline type behaviors. <laughs> and I see it less as, I don't, wouldn't use the word borderline. I would use, those are trauma reactions. So I see them all as symptoms of trauma. I see everything in the DSM as a symptom of trauma, by the way. So that's why I don't even like these labels, but the labels can sometimes be useful. And so the answer really is, what do they need? And how can we bring that experience now to them, to your part? So anyway, I, I probably said a whole lot to answer that one question, but that's where my brain went. <laughs> Peter. Well, yeah, I have two answers to your question, Joanna. The first one is <laughs> just yes. <laughs> you know, and sure. I mean, I, I think that internal family systems is uniquely suited to be able to work with the intensity of emotions and switching of parts and, and all of that. I think it's uniquely suited to be able to do that. I was in Seattle in 1998 and 1999 when DBT was really just getting off the ground there. Marshall Linehan was out there at the time and I was doing my, my residency, my clinical internship. Uh, so kind of familiar with some of what was going on with DBT like really early on. And one of the things I really like about DBT is this emphasis on validation and acceptance of your intense internal experience is real. I really like that about DBT, but I've got some concerns about DBT because there's a lot of emphasis on grounding, on regulating the emotions from above, you know, so using different types of emotional regulation techniques to lower the emotional intensity. And it's not parts sensitive. And so that can really be managers working to suppress exiles and firefighters. You know, so this is where I'm like, if you're not thinking about the whole person as a system, it's not necessarily better that everything's just calmed down in quotes, because I don't know how that happened. You know, is that because, you know, the exiles were successfully silenced again? Put back in their prison cells, the firefighters were contained again, and we have, you know, sort of the semblance of normality that characterized smoother functioning in the past. And is that really what we want? So there's, there's concerns I have when there's a lot of grounding exercises. What I would prefer to do is to connect with the parts. When you connect with parts, when they have a sense that it's safe, that you see them, that you hear them, that you understand them, when they have a sense that you care about them, they will downregulate themselves. 
And so you don't need to do all this tapping or all this bilateral stimulation or these other things to calm down all of that inside intensity as though it just came up out of nowhere, as though it was just sort of disconnected from anything else within you, right? As though it's some sort of random symptom. So this is my longer answer, sort of a parallel to to Dr. Jerry's longer answer. I don't really believe in personalities. You know, I talked about that in episode 116. I, I don't believe so much in personality disorders. I, I have some of the same concerns that you, Dr. Jerry, were talking about with the DSM. It's a collection of symptoms. But what I can say is that when you're talking about the intense emotional lability, the intense shifting or switching of emotions, the parts rotating and blending and becoming in front, I don't think there's a better system out there than IFS for that right now. Now, there haven't been yet the outcome studies. They haven't been done yet that that take DBT and compare it to IFS in a, in a clinical trial. We haven't seen that study be done yet. My hope is that that's not too far in the future. Well, I want to be respectful of the time, so we're going to sort of wrap it up. I have a few things. First of all, thank you, Dr. Jerry, for, for being here. I'm super excited to be able to have you. Really glad that you were able to spend this time with us again today. And you're going to be joining me. I'm super excited. You're going to be joining me later this month, later in January, for a special episode of this podcast, of the Interior Integration for Catholics podcast which is all about your book, Litanies of the Heart, Relieving Post-Traumatic Stress and Calming Anxiety Through Healing Our Parts. <laughs> and I might add, not through suppressing our parts, but through healing our parts, right? And here's, what was, here's what's on the book's cover. I really like this passage. All of us are wounded and in need of healing. In these pages, Dr. Jerry Creed accompanies you on your journey to overcome anxiety and traumas, big or small. You will benefit from his parts work therapeutic approach to find inner harmony, greater life fulfillment, and a deeper, more intimate relationship with God. Because when we clear out this stuff on the natural realm, when we, when we have that integration, when our parts are in greater harmony, when our innermost self in the natural realm is leading and guiding our system, it opens up the possibility to be able to have greater union with God because we've got this internal unity. The release date for this book is January 16th, 2024. You can pre-order it now at sophiainstitute.com. And I'm super excited about that. It's going to be so good to have you with us, Dr. Jerry, for that episode. We're going to get into that book the day before you can get it, because I've already got a copy of it. And we're going to be talking about it then. So is there anything that you'd like to share as a little preamble to that conversation, Dr. Jerry? I'm excited too. I can't wait for us to talk about it and get into it. I I mean, I love the fact that basically the book follows the 12 chapters to some extent follow elements of the IFS model, parts work approach. But what I'm excited about that, about it is that, yes, I get into the psychological aspects of it. I bring in a lot of my clinical background, my years of work, but I also really like each chapter has its own scripture study. And I really wanted to ground this book in a, in a Catholic anthropology and a Catholic philosophy, worldview, and whatnot. And I didn't want to just do what I think a lot of books do in this area that are Christian and just sort of proof text certain things to prove this. I really kind of wanted to mm -hmm. dive into like, let's just look at the whole Paul's letter to the Ephesians or the Exodus or whatnot. And like, let's look at at a deeper level because I really believe that this sort of parts approach is inherent, is, is in, our, in the fabric of who we are as people. It's not we're not baptizing a pagan thing. We're just 
inherent. We're just finding out what's true, and we're discovering how consistent it is with the biblical narrative and with the tradition of the saints, even though they didn't use that language directly. And that was super exciting for me to discover, and I'm looking forward to others discovering it too. Well, look forward to that. We're going to get into it in a lot greater detail in episode 130, and that'll come out on January 15th. 2024. So as part of our lead up to the release of Dr. Jerry's book, we are reviewing four other books, four Christian books on parts and systems. And those are coming out over the course of these weeks. You can check those out at soulsandhearts.com slash blog, or you can sign up for our weekly email. Go to our homepage, soulsandhearts.com, Click on the blue box that says, get Dr. Peter's weekly emails, and you'll start seeing those reviews. These are the best of what's out there. And we also go through it both from a a practical application standpoint and also from an anthropological standpoint. How do we understand this book and where is it consistent with what the Catholic Church teaches about the nature of the human person and where where might it vary? And so we're really also looking at these other books to to sort out what would make them most useful to you in your efforts toward better human formation. So check those out. My conversation hours are every Tuesday and Thursday from 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. You can call me on my cell phone, 317-567-9594. I want to say that during those calls, there's nothing that's therapy, just like when we do these, these live sessions, there's no therapy that goes on. And Dr. Jerry and I are not taking new clients. It's really common for people to ask us, you know, are you taking new clients? And we're both booked up really, really highly. But there is a couple of things we can offer you. One is we have a free video course called A Catholic's Guide to Choosing a Therapist. That's on our website. You can check that out or you can just Google A Catholic's Guide to Choosing a Therapist. And we just put up a list of Catholic IFS-informed therapists and coaches on our website. There's about 25 people on that list. You can go to soulsandhearts.com slash therapists if you're looking for therapists and coaches. So we want to offer you that. I'm going to be speaking at the Porn Free Man Convention. It's an online conference be on January 5th and 6th, 2024. This is sponsored by IFS coach Drew Boa and Husband Material, which is his, his organization and his podcast. I'm one of five speakers. My presentation is going to be on working with parts that want porn. It's just for guys. That presentation will be on Saturday, January 6th from 3 o'clock p.m. to 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern time. And I'll be on the panel with the other members after that. It's free for those guys, Christian men, that would like to check that out. You'll be guided through powerful exercises by experts to really be able to get more to the bottom of parts that are attracted to porn. So. You can register at thepornfreeman.com. All run together, thepornfreeman.com. And then also you can get on the wait list for the next cohort because when this comes out on January 1st, we will have closed the previous cohort for the St. Francis Xavier cohort for the Resilient Catholics community. That's going to be closed by the time this airs. But go ahead and get on the waiting list for the next cohort, the seventh cohort. That will, we will reopen for applications in June of 2024. So you can get on that interest list. And if you get on the interest list, it is common 
that we need a few more people from the interest list to fill out the companies from the previous cohort. So if this conversation about parts, if this conversation about systems, if this way of thinking about the human person, if you're invested in your human formation, if this is all coming together for you, you might consider the Resilient Catholics community. So really want to encourage people to, to keep that in mind. That's sort of the center where a lot of the great human formation work happens within souls and hearts. And so with that, any last words that you'd like to share with us, Dr. Jerry, before we go to our invocations? I don't think so, other than it's great to be here. And I'm just super excited about where this parts work approach is going and how it's integrating in so many different ways. I think it's it's revolutionary, and I'm so excited to be part of it and to be part with you guys exploring it too. So now an invitation to all of you to turn your mics on if you'd like to pray with us when we do our invocations to our patroness and our patron. So if you'd like to join us with that, we'd love to hear your voices on the recording. Our Lady, our Mother Untire of Knots. Pray for us. St. John the Baptist. Pray for us. 